Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as He is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. With you, as always, is the president and founder of Good Fight Ministry and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simeon, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. How are you doing? Wonderful, bro. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Also with us today is the show's producer, Tony Palacio. How are thy doing? I am blessed, <laughs> thy good sir. <laughs> uh, but uh, guys, we are so excited because now... When I originally, I try to put together the episodes and, and send them to Joe, and then we all talk throughout the week. Hey, maybe you know, a story comes up, or maybe somebody asks a question. They're like, hey, I really, I'm having some struggles with this. We try to get to that. So, guys, don't stop sending in questions. Don't stop sending in emails just because we didn't get to it this week. Also, guys, be that you know persistent widow. Keep telling us, not that we're God even close to that, obviously, but I'm saying be persistent. Yeah, watch the gender thing, Keep- bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> but um, be persistent. Uh, keep keep coming at me, and if I don't, if we don't get right to it right away, it's just because we are already working on something or whatever. And you know. juggling a thousand and one things, but and we love y'all. Always doing that, but yes, praise God, we are so excited. And one of the reasons I'm excited about this, and I don't even think this is going to be close to the first, the only two episodes, because we end up doing two oh, episodes no. we'll on do this. More. Because I know for Tony, when I first came on at Good Fight Ministries, he warned me, okay? He warned me. (laughs) Here it comes. And uh, I still, even with that warning, was not ready for the onslaught of King James-only adherence, okay? And it's, it, and honestly, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna get a, into that portion of it as much as uh, we will in a future episode. It relates to it though. Because it, oh, of course it relates to it. And it's one of the things that it's so bothersome, and I always call it, and I'm, and I'm sorry this may be offensive, but it is the silliest of the false doctrines that I've had people come and, and, and present to us. So, yeah, where's a Bible verse based on biblical authority that you have to use a King James translation? Yeah, 1611. Oh, the Bible says, that, you know, the Word of God is pure. Yeah, that. That applies to any faithful, true, you know, version, not just the King James, you know. The King James is not pure, as you'll see. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that, too. And, and guys, this is also uh, just a point, you know. There are translations that are just honestly abominable, and I would point that into the message translation. Yeah. New World uh, Translation uh, by the, the JWs. Oh, yeah, that's... You know, Joseph Smith's translation. Joseph Smith's translation. We have some abominable translations. And certainly Eugene Peterson's the message, that's for sure. And, you know, with some of the... Some of the People out there, the Ruckman Knights, and and <laughs> that are out there yeah. passing along false information, dividing the church. That's why this yes. is—it's a yeah. heresy. If people prefer the King James, praise God. If people love the King James, praise God. If they feel it's the best translation, praise God. If that's your persuasion, but to divide churches over and say this is the only translation—it wasn't until 1611 that we actually had God's Word. You know, is ridiculous. Yeah, and like Gail Ripplinger, you know, coming out with the books, and then you get Stephen Anderson, you know, the mm-hmm. new King James only prophet that is out there. And uh, I, you know, it, it's heartbreaking to me, and it's something that is so sad. And we've had people—I mean, we've had people write to us in earnest, and hey, I just I disagree with you guys here, and that's fine. But so often, like when we came out with the Submerging Church, you know, the NASB is used on there. 
And someone says, well, you're a part of the emergent church because you put the NASB. And you're like, give me a break, man. This is like three hours of exposing the emergent church for what it is and actually looking about, hey, this verse says this. Let's look at the different translations and let's go back to the original language as best we can to get a better understanding. But before that, that's for a whole nother episode, I think, because Joe came in here and had a totally different idea than what I had sent to him. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, you know what? You're gonna you're gonna have to prove it to us because yeah. I didn't know this. I right. had no idea really coming into it um, with, concerning this, and this has to do with KJV onlyist or the KJV translators and Calvinism. It's a favorite topic of ours, so we're gonna discuss that. Yeah, when I read a Bible translation and the the translators have a theological bias, and the theological bias is <laughs> unbiblical, and they smuggle it into the text, I have huge problems with those kinds of translations. And I, you know, I have problems with, I mean, you're going to get some theological bias maybe for, from, you know, a lot of trans, uh, translators, but you, you hope not. I mean, I love the NASB. I'm not saying it's a perfect translation. It's a little bit harder to read, but it's a good study Bible because it's very, very close to the Greek text. Uh, it's, it's, the ESV is a Calvinistic, and I'm going to say this, the ESV is a Calvinistic translation, but guess what? These guys did an admirable job of not, that I've seen, smuggling Calvinistic soteriological doctrines, the so-called doctrines of grace, into the text. I haven't seen it, and, and now I haven't read the ESV, that translation, particular translations from beginning to end. But what I've seen so far, they've been tried to be faithful to Scripture, which I appreciate. You're, they're trying to keep their theological biases out, at least when it comes to Calvinism. Uh, because through, you know, uh, patriarchalism or complementarianism when it comes to husband-wife relationships. Some people say, oh, it's a terrible translation because it, they work their bias at, in, in that way. Well, I happen to believe in complementarianism, and I believe that the scriptures support that, but uh, I'm not an ESV-only person. I, I'll quote that once in a while. I'll quote the NIV, which some complain that's been influenced by Calvinism, and you can see areas where you can find some, you know, it's, it looks like it's happened maybe to a degree, but guess what? Uh, the King James... That's the king of King or of Calvinistic translations, and you guys, <laughs> uh, I've pointed a couple things out through the years, but I've had my own little file I've kept for years, and I thought, oh, you guys haven't heard me talk about this because I think I've showed you Chad Hebrews chapter ten verse uh, thirty eight thirty nine, and what Adam Clark had said about that some time ago. So I, I think I dropped a little nugget for you some time ago on that. But uh, part one, you'll see some definite Calvinistic bias. You listen to part two, which. <laughs> uh, it's the warning passages where the Lord is actually warning us not to commit apostasy, not to fall away. Uh, Calvinism teaches that you can't truly fall away if you're truly saved. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints, the P in the tulip system. Uh, that, I, I can't wait. That's the next episode that you guys will hear after this. And that'll put the, the last nail in the coffin saying you'll, you'll have no doubt that uh, Calvinism has definitely, uh, Calvinistic translators had influenced the King James translation. And I've seen it in a number of places. I will admit this. I'll acknowledge this. There's areas where it's more of a suspicion because the translation is, is off and it sides towards Calvinism. It happens to do that every time when it's off and it comes to Calvinistic doctrine, though. But uh, So there may be some times where it was incidental and not purposeful, but there's a couple times where it's really hard to believe because it doesn't reflect the Greek text at all, but it reflects Calvinism and course translations translators are working with the hebrew and you know in some aramaic very small amount of the old testament and they're working with the new testament greek manuscripts to translate into the english language and of course the king james only people i thought wow this will pretty much and there's a ton of king james only people that are not calvinist 
Yeah. And that, that's going to make them really real rethink about thinking that uh, the King James is the ultimate translation. Keep in mind, folks, we don't have a hard time at all with those who prefer the majority text over you know what most people agree are the manuscripts closest to the apostles. And as long as they're not divisive about it, I don't go around saying NASB only or, you know, <laughs> and where to divide. And I can't believe you don't use NASB. It's when people get like that, it becomes very divisive. And the word for, the word heresy in the Greek actually means to be divisive, to cause division, ungodly division. And that's not a division based on the Word of God. That's a division based on claiming that your favorite translation has to be used if people are going to be saved in some cases or if people are truly using the Word of God. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to point this out because this is actually something that touched base with me as a brand new youth leader. When I was first teaching, there was a young man here, and he said, hey, I, I talked to this guy, and he told me if if I didn't have the King James, like I can't trust whatever that was written in there. And so when you're teaching, I'm, I can't even trust what you're saying because you're not t- saying it from Tragic. the King James. Is that true? And you know what's, what's crazy is the guy who said that is not even a believer anymore. He's actually an atheist. The guy who originally told him that. Oh, and, it's so heartbreaking. And, it's, and I could see the spiritual warfare that was already on. I said, I would stay away from that guy, in all honesty. And I ended up being right, you know, for... Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, a lot of folks don't realize that many of the King James-only people, they actually, when you show them that, hey, this translation, for instance... Uh, you know, uh, Pashkov, or the word for uh, the Greek word for Passover. It's translated Passover in pretty much every translation, right? But when you get to the King James, it translates at Easter, which comes from Astarte or Ishtar, you know, a pagan god. And they're calling, and it's a terrible translation of that word. You know, that's not that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a word that's being used of the Jewish Passover. The context is speaking of the Jewish Passover week in the book of Acts, and the King James translates it Easter. Well, guess what? The King James only translators say, well, that must be what God wanted them to do because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even though the King James translators themselves say that they recognized that they, and they were the new translation when they wrote their introduction, they were afraid they wouldn't be accepted. That those who had done the Geneva Bible and the pilgrims wouldn't even take it over with them. The United States, when they came to the Americas, you know, they looked at it as the new, the King James was the, was the, was the evil Bible, you know, and so forth, or the corrupt Bible because it was the, the government issued Bible and we're escaping tyranny and so forth. And the King James translators were a little bit, had some trepidation. They're like, hey, by the way, we recognize that God uses all these different translations, even as they said in their their language in the introduction, even the meanest of translations, meaning if it communicates the word of God, it's still the word of God. So guess what? The King James translators disagreed with people that had come later saying that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the, by the way, the King James translation, a lot of people don't know there were thousands of footnotes in the margins giving alternative readings of how the Greek could be expressed, acknowledging that they may not be expressing it the best way. It's just heartbreaking when you see... It, 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 it has become a cult. I'm talking about in regard to those who say, you have to use the King James or or you don't really have the Word of God. Nobody had the Word of God until the King James came over a millennium and a half after Jesus in English. It's just heartbreaking. And then I like to ask the question, Okay, you know, where in the scripture, or which King James Version is the Word of God, is the perfect Word of God where every word, and that's where they get stuck. Because if they say the 1611, then they have to admit almost every other King James, the only person who's not using 1611, which you can barely read. You know, I've tried to read it in the past, about 1611. Or is it the, uh, the one that came a few years later? You know, the sinner's Bible or the wicked Bible where it says, thou shalt commit adultery, another King James translation. Or is it the 1769 version, you know, which is the one that people use right now. Whichever one you pick, 
you're excluding the other one because guess what? They're not the same. They're different. When things are different, they're not the same. Okay. <laughs> and you can't say this is perfect and then this is perfect even though it's worded differently. You know? So anyway, let's get into uh, dealing with, and this is, I'll just say my own pilgrimage on this issue is I was, you know, I, it's not, I, if I had a bias, it would have been toward the King James. I memorized so much scripture in the King James. When I quote scripture, a lot of it's still King James. You'll hear that come out, you know. Even What's that? In, you'll hear that a lot of coming out in your teachings oh, yeah. down here. You know, it's availeth it's, much like you did last. last <laughs> <time>. <laughs> yeah, one of the episodes. It's because, and you know what? I had a King James Bible when I was a new believer. I, I I memorized just about half of the Book of Revelation in King James English, and guess what? That's where I started struggling. There were things that I was memorizing in King James that were theologically off. Mm-hmm. I'm memorizing Revelation chapter five. It talks about how Jesus, they're singing a new song, about how Jesus shed his blood for the angels in the King James Version. And I'm, I'm memorizing this, and I'm already memorizing the King James, so I'm like, I'll memorize it this way, but this, every time I get that, because when you memorize scripture, you, you instantaneously, like Tony, I know you've been memorizing Psalm 139, I think right. you've done that, it's a long yep. psalm, yep. beautiful, but you, you just, you churn the scripture, Amen. You, you meditate on it, and it's so powerful. And when I got to that part, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm memorizing verses that say that Jesus, you know, they're singing a new song that... He, you know, shed his lamb for the, his blood for the four living creatures, you know, which are the cherubim, you know. And I'm like, I know he didn't shed his blood for angels. It says he didn't die for angels in Hebrews 2, died for humans. And then guess what? I went and checked the manuscripts and the oldest manuscripts. It doesn't have him dying for those who are singing the four living creatures or singing that song. Us, Us it's for yeah. them, you know. And then I started to realize, wow, I started looking. The, and I was, you know, a young Christian when I had done this. And then I started looking at the King James manuscripts and what was used, and I started realizing, wow, you know what? Desiderius Erasmus, the one who dedicated his, you know, text, which the King James was written off of to the Pope, uh, he only had, when he did what became the King James translation of the Revelation, which was used and became part of the Texas Receptus, he only had one manuscript. It was over a thousand years after the Apostles, and he didn't even have the very end of the book of Revelation in Greek. And when he got to the end, he had several verses left. He's like, what do I do? He went to the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Bible, and he took the Latin and he translated it into Greek, saying, "Well, maybe it was translated." So, what what was the Greek this Latin came from? Okay, he translated into Greek. Well, maybe this is what the manuscript might have looked like. Then he translates that Greek into English. He works backwards, and it's ridiculous. But he was desperate. Guess what? That's the end of Book of Revelation in the King James Version is from that was where that was produced from. So now we have all kinds of manuscripts, uh, manuscripts that are close to the Apostles of Revelation and so forth that clear things up quotations from the early church fathers as well, you know, quoting the early manuscripts. So as I began to look at the King James, and guess what? Keep in mind, if I had a bias, I love the King James. You know, I was very conversant with the, the King James language and and and, and loved it. And I loved memorizing. It's very memorable. I still think it's a good translation in many ways. I think it's faulty in other ways. I just, I'm, we're just about truth, you know? We believe God's word is in the uh, manuscripts, is the, the, the Hebrew Aramaic and Greek manuscripts. And we believe that in the original autographs, yeah. the original manuscripts, you have the, the Word of God. Absolutely. Now we have translations, but when you translate, if you were to translate something Chad says in this episode into Spanish, it would still be Chad's words. We wouldn't say that's not really the words of Chad. No, it's just another language. So we still have the Word of God, but the best thing to do is to get back as close to the original as possible. And God's made sure he's, he's 
preserved his word for us. Yeah, amen. I was just going to speak to that, you know, because one of the things that I praise God for is the fact that we have so many manuscripts. And amen. They get, and it, we don't, you know, it isn't like the Quran, you know, where we got to put our, all our faith in Uthman and make sure yeah. that Uthman, when he burned every other text up, that he was right in his text, is that we get to test, I mean, thousands and thousands of scribes and say, let's see where the difference is. And then you see how, I mean, it's ridiculous. I've been studying manuscripts ever since you got me into it, buying me books on the subject. And just to see you how clear him, it is, I'm just I love it. I love it. So I don't. Wanna, I, we <laughs> even though, even the, in the words of the Quran, like you know, and and this Islam is teaching that you get seventy virgins. Some linguists say you go back and you look at that the, <laughs> yes. the language they were dying yeah. for seventy raisins because yeah. they were being promised paradise. They became virgins to make it more attractive. You know. Anyway, poor guys. I mean, they're they're dying for seventy virgins. They don't get the virgins or the raisins. They need Jesus. <laughs> you know. But it's interesting because now looking at you know. Uh, and I'll we'll, do, we'll spend the rest of the show talking about uh, the, you know, the Calvinistic. Keep in mind, most of these translators were Calvinists, and they had a theology, and uh, they some of these guys were really good scholars, but your biases sometimes come through. And Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's son-in-law, and his successor in Geneva, because Calvin was pretty much like the Pope of Geneva, and Beza took it to another level regarding you know, scholasticism and really systemizing it. And Calvin, a lot of people say, did not teach limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect. And they'll debate that among Calvinists. But Beza certainly did. He took it to a, a more rigid level. But Theodore Beza, uh, the, the Texas Receptus, which went through like four visions and was based a lot on the work of uh, uh, Desiderius, the monk, Roman Catholic monk, uh, Erasmus. Uh, it, it was, you know... Uh, it was strengthened, supposedly, you know, by uh, Calvinist Theodore Beza in 1598, uh, who, after it had had revisions, it was influenced by him. And the, and then when they did the, the 1611 version, guess what? They were operating from the Texas Receptus, which was influenced mainly by uh, a Roman Catholic monk and by Beza and some others, you know. And then Calvinist translators were the ones that were working on it. So I just think it's interesting because when you look at some of the King James only guys are rabid Calvinists, where they're like, the other translations don't promote the Calvinism that you see in the King James. And they're right, because the King James is a translation of Greek, but it's also, guess what, a mistranslation uh, of the Greek because it gets into promoting the Calvinistic views of the Calvinists who were writing the King James. And guess what? You will see doctrines that support Calvinism in the King James Bible that don't reflect the Greek language at all, but promote Calvinism because there were King James, the King James translators were Calvinists. Okay. And guess what? I'll tell you right now, Beza, Calvin's son-in-law, he did take, you know, he did take license with, I mean, he made, sometimes he just take something that didn't even exist. He'd add words to the book of Revelation, for instance, in Revelation chapter 16, in the King James version, the first couple of verses, it says who was, and you know, who is, who was, and is to come. Uh, and I'm not quoting that exactly right, probably, but who was and is and is to come, sometimes what you see throughout Revelation. But in the in the, in uh, some of the newer translations, like NASB and so forth, when you come to Revelation 11, it's who was and is. To come isn't there anymore, because guess what? It's a picture of Jesus coming at the seventh trumpet. He says he took his great power and began to reign, and his wrath was put on the earth, and he destroyed those who were destroying the earth, and so forth. And who was and is. So sometimes to come is dropped. Is emphasizing how he's come. And when you get to Revelation 16, that's gone. But guess what Theodore Beza did? He added 
that he's to come still. And he admits in his notes on it that, yeah, there's no Greek manuscript that has these words. But I figured it was probably there originally and just left out. Probably. You have to deal with the Greek text and not your biases or not what you think God might have said. And that's when I really get irritated with translators. But anyway, I get really heartbroken when God is turned into a despotical monster who only wants to save, uh, only wants to truly have a few people saved and wants to damn the rest. So Will Kenny, by the way, he's a Calvinist who wrote an article I was reading recently called Calvinism and the King James Bible. And he's upset that people are looking at modern versions because they're not getting influenced by the Calvinism that he sees in the King James Version. Listen to what he says. He writes, The authority and truth of God's inerrant, perfect words and the doctrines of grace are under direct attack. Only, and he's talking about the doctrines of grace is Calvinism, basically. Only in the King James Bible are all God's perfect words of truth found today. So he feels that, you know, it's if we don't use the King James, we're not going to get the doctrines of grace we're not going to see Calvinism as much as we would, you know. And by the way, he uses various arguments. And one of his is 1 Timothy 2.4, where the King James says that God wills that all be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Well, he has a hard time with the NASB and other translations that translate that Greek word desires. God desires all would be saved and come to the knowledge of truth because he feels if will is stronger and if God wills that all would be saved, his will always comes to pass. Therefore, he can't really mean all there in the sense of all people without exception, he must mean all classes of people. And the heartbreaking thing there is that he doesn't believe that God has a desire that all would be saved. And there's a sense in which God wills or desires that all would be saved. But at the same time, if you don't turn to him, he wills that you'd be saved through coming to Jesus. If you reject Jesus and uh, you don't accept God's will in your life, he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If you refuse to humble yourself, you're not going to receive God's grace. And his plan is that if you reject his grace, then guess what? He's going to punish you because he's a holy God. But so he rejects the understanding of 1 Timothy 2.4, that God wills or desires that all would be saved and come to knowledge of truth to mean that God truly wants all to be saved. And he, he says, well, God really wishes all kinds of people would be saved, people from different classes, you know, but not everybody without exception and so forth. Uh, even Spurgeon, who's the most popular and most famous Calvinist ever besides John Calvin himself, uh, Spurgeon, when it came to come to 1 Timothy 2.4, he says of the older Calvinists, some of the past Calvinists, he says, and of course men like this, he says it's like they take the text, and and I'm paraphrasing him, he says, uh, and they and they make it say God does not will that I'll be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. They make it say the opposite of what it says. Spurgeon admits that they're saying that. And then he says that the Holy Ghost wanted to say that God does not will that I'll be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. The Holy Ghost would have said that. He says it only in the way only Spurgeon can say that, right? <laughs> and uh, but the Holy Spirit inspired that God does desire that all will be saved and come to knowledge of truth. That's the heart of God. But this man believes that that was a, a faithful Calvinistic translation of the word. Now, I'm not saying, personally, keep in mind, I've already prefaced my remarks earlier in the show. I'm not saying every uh, verse that Calvinists like because it's in the King James was intentionally stated that way to promote Calvinism. Although I do believe there are some there that were definitely promote or presented in such a way where the theology was pre- being presented more than the actual uh, faithfulness to the Greek language. Uh, he, he, this is his statement on another term that's translated differently by modern translations, I would say oftentimes better translations, and it's the res- having no respect of persons. And I, I was King James guy, man. That's all the Bible I had for quite a time. And uh, I would get to the verses where it says, God is not a respecter of persons. And, and then when I got the NASB and other translations, they said, 
God is not partial. God doesn't show partiality. God is not does not play favorites, those kinds of things. Well, listen to what he says. He doesn't like that because he wants to believe God does play favorites and that they would not have heaven. They don't want to have it crammed, only with God's special elect group, which, of course, they're part of. That's who they want to, they want to be saved. Uh, they want, don't want to believe God would save others. Well, listen to what he writes. The phrase to accept the persons of men or to respect persons does not mean, as the modern versions have translated it, to show partiality or to show favoritism. One of the chief arguments of the Arminian side against the doctrine of election is God does not show partiality or favoritism, so election can not be true. That's a straw man. We don't say election can't be true. We believe election is true. We believe God chooses according to his foreknowledge, just what Peter says in First <laughs> Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, just like Paul says in what Romans 8, 28, 29, God works all things together for the good for those who love him, for the call according to his purpose. And verse 29, for whom he foreknew, that's those who would love him, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We believe in election 100%. We believe it's according to God's foreknowledge, and he knows who will receive the gospel and who will not before the world is even made. He goes on to say, the new Bibles are reinforcing this fallacious argument. Not to show partiality is to treat all men equally. And this does, this uh, God does not do. So he's saying God doesn't, you know, basically show, uh, God does show favoritism. And, but the Bible clearly teaches that God wills and desires that all will be saved. It shows that he invites all, whosoever will. It shows that Jesus provided salvation for all. And it also shows that whoever comes to Jesus, he's not going to cast away. So that salvation is open up to open to everybody. Now it's interesting. I went to the ESV and I looked at these verses in the ESV, which is a Calvinistic translation. I mean, you can go to and, and I'm and as I said earlier, I have no problem with the ESV translation so far. I think it's a great translation. I do have a problem with the ESV study notes because they're thoroughly Calvinistic, and you'll get a Calvinistic indoctrination. It's like reading John MacArthur's study Bible. You know, turn you into one of those believing that. God ultimately hates most people. And he used the them. NASB for that. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, for the ESV, I think was popular, but the ESV says that uh, God does not uh, is not partial and does not take bribes. Ten seventeen of Deuteronomy, Second Chronicles nineteen seven. It says that uh, there's no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking of bribes. Peter in Acts chapter ten verses thirty four and thirty five. He says he, he came to understand that Cornelius could be saved, and it wasn't just about God saving Jews. But guess what? Where Cornelius and his family, or the people that were with him, I should say, received Jesus the Messiah, and they received the Holy Spirit, Peter went on to say, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You guys see what I'm saying here? The ESV is a Calvinist translation, and it translates it the same way the NASB does, same way the NIV does, and they understand that the Bible does indeed teach that God doesn't show partiality. Paul in Romans 2, 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That's why Paul could say that God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's why before Paul says that God desires or wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, he can say to pray for everyone. You say, pray for uh, kings and those who are in authority. Pray for King who? King Nero? King Nero who's beheading the Christians, you know? Because God even wills him to be saved. And why would Paul say that? Because Paul said he was worse than Nero. Chapter before that, Paul said that he was the chief of all sinners, sinners and God saved him. And if God saved him, he said he's a pattern that he'll save anyone who will come to him. Amen? So on and on we have these scriptures. And, well, listen to this. I think this is really powerful. Uh, the final reprinting of the 1790 edition of John Wesley's New Testament John Wesley was radically, one of the most radically evangelists that ever lived. More people saved through him than anybody else, perhaps, 
than Jesus himself, right? Because Jesus is, is, is the Lord. But George C. Sell, in the introduction to John Wesley's New Testament, uh, he m- mentions that John Wesley steered away from the King James translation and he wanted to be more reliable to the translation. And one consideration was because the King James Wesley understood to be biased and toward Calvinism. And he says a considerable number of Wesley's deviations from the King James Version are, in the second place, due to doctrinal considerations. The common English translation was made by a group of scholars. Many of them were strongly Calvinistic. We know this independently, as well as from the quality of their translation. Well, Adam Clark was a proponent of, uh, was a, uh, his probably his top theologian. Yeah. And he, in his notes, talks about one specific text that he believes was perverted by Calvinists, which we'll get to in the next episode where we look at the warning text. There's more I wanted to say on this, and I'll say something really quickly. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, the King James translates it, that such as should be saved. And Charles Ellicott says that the Greek does not reflect it, and the modern versions say such as are being saved, but those who should be saved, Ellicott, and he's a very respected uh, commentator, states that this is definitely, he states, a... uh, Calvinistic translation doesn't reflect the Greek, it reflects Calvinism. And we could go on and on with this, but I'm looking forward to the next show because we look at these severe warnings that are being watered down so you can be led to believe that you don't have to persevere in your faith or you automatically will persevere in your faith when really you can fall away. And Calvinists have tampered with the Word of God, the King James translation. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, won't you consider visiting our support page at goodfight.org? Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062, or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.